Last Thursday, Y2J. That's right. Y2J, exactly. <laughs> Look at you. Y2J. Look at you. You're 275 pounds. Your name is Hugh Morris. What? Your name is Hugh Morris. What? Is that funny? Is that humorous? Are you here to make me laugh? What? to the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast. My name is Eric Landstrom, and today we're hopping in the time machine to go back to August of 2001 to look at all of your WWF and Alliance business. And I'm first joined by uh, WWF stalwart Chris White. Chris, how are you today? Very good, Eric. Uh, Glad to be back on the show, this time in the guest chair for what's a rare appearance. And the uh, John Tolos to my Fred Blassie, Dan Welling. Dan, how are you today? Um, I'm very well. Uh, I'll be honest, I'm I'm too new school a fan to get that reference, but I, I, I'm sure it meant that we basically like completely different things um, and we'll completely disagree on all of the matches we're going to review today, and yet we still work podcast magic together. I think that about, I think that about sums it up. You know, Dan, I never thought that you and I would be compared to the L.A. wrestling scene in the 1960s, but but here we are. Uh, anyway, uh, no time to uh, waste. Uh, Chris, with the headlines. Sure thing. And first up, we've got WWF Excess. At the beginning of August, it appeared that TNN was clearing a two-hour block of TV on Saturday nights for a new WCW show. What could you possibly call that? It was speculated that an angle at SummerSlam would lead to WCW branching off. This expanded programming may be a result of WWF's sudden bloated roster after its absorption of several WCW and ECW talents. By the end of the month, though, 
WWF was leading people to believe that the Saturday night show would be a magazine highlight show with some live segments. The show will be called WWF Excess and will debut in, on TNN in early September. Let's check in on the locker room. Several new additions to the WWF locker room are off to a rocky start. DDP remains on the outs with management. DDP blamed Sarah for their angles on TV coming off poorly instead of taking any blame. In addition, WWF management sees DDP as someone who performs wrestling instead of someone who wrestles. Further, DDP's timing in the ring is noticeably off while he adapts to the vaunted WWF style. RVD is getting heat for his style, which has been accused of being unrealistic and lacking psychology. Mike Awesome has developed a reputation for being clumsy in the ring. Jerry has a reputation for working stiff. And Taz, well, Taz is said to just be a general pain in the ass. Rey Mysterio and Kevin Nash appear headed to the Fed when their Time Warner contracts lapse in January 2002. Vince McMahon is reported to be gung-ho to bring in Nash, despite warnings from pretty much everyone in the front office that Nash will be more of a headache than a help. Rest in peace, Dennis Corralazzo. Yes, uh, veering into our friends over at the Indie Wrestling 20 Years Ago Projects uh, territory, but still relevant here. Longtime NWA promoter in the New York area, Dennis Corluso, died at just 48 years old. Uh, this happened on July 29th, but the news did not circulate nationally and overseas for a couple of days afterwards. Where this comes in is Corluso is best known nationally for co-promoting the card, which saw Shane Douglas and Eastern Championship Wrestling break from the NWA. Coraluso was also at the center of the 1997 appearance by Jim Cornette in ECW when Cornette only agreed to appear in Philadelphia after Paul Heyman apologized to Coraluso. Russo down under. Hide your ears, or hide your eyes and shield your ears, Chris Lacey. Vince Russo is working with an Australian group for a tour of the country. With the World Wrestling All-Stars, the local promoter has claimed that six of WCW's biggest stars, including Goldberg, Nash, Scott Steiner, and Jeff Jarrett, will be headlining the tour. They, that, might, that might be news to those guys. But there is skepticism that the WWA will be able to buy out the talent's Time Warner agreements. October 26th is the target date for this mega card, and do believe that if this card does shape up, it will be covered here on the Wrestling 20 Years Ago podcast pandas go over the world wildlife fund went over the world wrestling federation in a court ruling mid-august which could cost the wwf the use of just that the acronym wwf you heard that right the london court ruled that the fed had violated a 1994 marketing agreement with the fund for limited use of the wwf initials Apparently, the global reach of the internet is to blame, as the website WWF.com cannot be limited to domestic usage and therefore violated the agreement. The fund, for its part, argued that the Fed's ongoing promotion of the WWF acronym was damaging to the World Wildlife Fund brand. And uh, finally, the bodies hit the floor. They did on August 19th at the Compact Center in San Jose, California, SummerSlam, which saw wins for Edge, the Dudleys and Test, X-Pac, Chris Jericho, Rob Van Dam, the Brothers of Destruction, Kurt Angle, and The Rock. We'll talk about uh, this uneven but entertaining show in detail in a couple of minutes. 
But first, and Chris, thank you so much for reading off those headlines. I'll throw it to Dan. Dan, anything catch your eye in the news? Well, I think let's start with the fact that we may be having to change the name of the company that we're going to be talking about for the next, you know, however can, many years. Um, can you believe uh, that? That's crazy, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I, I, I do like my nature, so I'm obviously aware of the World Wildlife Fund, but yeah, I mean, you're the legal expert here, Eric. How how much of a legal foothold do the wrestling company have versus the wildlife company? So intellectual property law is about as complicated as law gets. Uh, and I did study some of it in law school, but I don't practice it uh, in real life. So uh, still a limited understanding. But basically, it sounds like in the mid-90s, and so this probably was all brewing from the 80s onward when the WWF uh, became the, the wrestling WWF, you can see why it's confusing, became very popular. And then I'm sure what happened is the, the World Wildlife Fund said, hey, we have a pre-existing trademark for the WWF. Um, but because the WWF wrestling and WWF you know, animal protection are such different things, they could kind of reach this agreement to say, okay, in this space of the market, you have the WWF for wrestling and entertainment. And in this other space of the market, World Wildlife Fund, you have it for, uh, you know, whatever you do. But it sounds like what the World Wildlife Fund did back in, what does it say, 1994, was flex a little bit and say, hey, we have this pre-existing trademark and we're doing something that's beneficial for you in reaching this agreement. So you're allowed to use it in these certain places of the of the marketplace, but not in others. And from what I understand is that when the internet came about and started to permeate the, the global marketplace, just the WWF having that international reach of WWF.com and, and, and likely uh, if you read the tea leaves of this, uh, the WWF kind of taking a, a less family-friendly approach to its presentation. The World Wildlife Fund said, hey, your global reach of the WWF.com domain name is violating this prior agreement, and it's now confusing the marketplace. And what's, what we're seeing is a uh, kind of a denigration of our brand, the World Wildlife Fund, because of all the sex and drugs and booze you have on your TV and all the blood and violence, and on technical terms – you know, our agreement didn't contemplate this Internet global reach. And we're, you know, we're calling in your debt now. And it sounds like the WWF wrestling fought back and said, no, 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 this is all in compliance in a London court. So this is taking place, you know, in your guys' jurisdiction uh, basically said, nope, the World Wildlife Fund has, you know, prior rights in the marketplace. They owned the mark WWF before and the, the World Wrestling Federation has indeed violated this agreement. So. That's kind of the best I can piece it together uh, from from reading it in the sheets and the news. Um, but, yeah, this is something to be taken very seriously. Like IP law is nothing to fuck around with. Mm. I mean, that, that's to get all the jokes aside about how Vincent Mann would jump at the prospect of having the word wrestling out of his company's name. Um, but, yeah, I mean, this is a company that has been around for 50 years, is probably the most synonymous now definitely the most synonymous free letters that are associated with wrestling so yeah any prospect of this changing it would would be seismic and it would take a lot of getting used to um but yeah it's it's pretty shocking that even you know something as you know as as, as synonymous with with a completely complete industry would have to change because of another competitor you know, not even a competitor but another you know, brand organization 
that is you know as completely different to this sector as possible um is, is definitely something that is going to be a lot of uh, fans and a lot of commentators and a lot of media to get used to yeah it's going to be very interesting to, to keep to keep an eye on yeah and, and it sounds like the fund was totally okay with tie up lock up you know garbage man goes over you know french you know french aristocrat but as soon as you started having women in bikinis and all this blood and violence i think they started to think well we don't this isn't really what we agreed to you know kind of share the marketplace with so again you know the wwf wrestling started you know deciding several years ago to you know take an edgier approach uh, which has certainly worked in terms of its financial um portfolio and going uh public and everything but but this may be the ultimate like comeuppance for for Vince's decision to kind of sell out against, you know, what traditional wrestling values had been. Um, Chris White, anything on this uh, WWF uh, conundrum? Yeah, um, so uh, two things, really, um, and I'm not sure how much insight you'll have into them as our legal expert, but just what's what's taken so long? Like the the edgy, the edgy side of the uh, Fed's product has been around for a few years like now and uh yeah it's taken to august 2001 for this to sort of like reach this point and like you'd, you'd think maybe that this might have sort of jumped the shark with the the fund a while ago and i guess the second question is like how long until we see stone cold steve austin become the world's first wsef champion world <laughs> sports entertainment federation like it like is that is that like a is that something that might need to happen by the end of the year like 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 when you reach this stage and a, there's been a court ruling against you like is like a, a a name change genuinely a real possibility or is it like is there still room for like some sort of agreement where okay we won't do this and in this space we won't refer to ourselves as the WWF we'll refer to ourselves as World Wrestling Federation in completely like without the acronym you know and, and stuff like that are, there, are, there, are those types of loopholes possible or is it is it kind of like have we gone beyond that now and they're in a, they're in a bit of trouble as far as the timing these things take years and years and so it's it's very likely and, and i will admit uh i you know I, i'm not as familiar with this as i should be and so maybe what i'll do is prepare something that maybe can run on the september volume that will maybe get everybody caught up to this if there's enough interest in it from from you know a, a deep dive perspective of the the legal ins and outs but but two things are certain ones the, these things uh, complex ip litigation takes a long long time um and so chris it's very possible uh, likely even this has been kind of simmering for a couple of years and it's not something that would necessarily even be reported on or even very well known um in the news it's not something that would be public news until there was a ruling or a judgment unless somebody on either of the legal teams talked to Meltzer or keller or somebody like that and like I don't think the World Wildlife Fund's legal defense team is, you know, is calling up the, uh, you know, Wrestling Observer, you know, telephone hotline. Um, and certainly this isn't something that the WWF would want made public. So uh, we don't really know how long this has actually been going on, but, you know, it's not something that started six months ago. It's something that likely started years and years ago. Uh, as far as the uh, kind of reach of this decision and, and, and what might happen, uh, it is taking place in a London court. I'm not as familiar with the, you know, the the, the European, uh, the British uh, civil legal system and how, but I do know that IP rights can be and generally are now enforced globally unless there's other 
some sort of agreements, or at least they can be. And so depending on how this works out, if there's appeals, if there are reconsiderations that happen, or if there's an agreement, if they refine their agreement and maybe the WWF pays the fund, you know, some go away money or something like that, you know, this isn't a definitive answer as far as I understand it. But if it does become a definitive answer, it is very likely that the U.S. courts and other global jurisdictions will adopt this decision because both the World Wildlife Fund and the WWF uh, for wrestling are global brands. And so um, unless there's some carve outs across the world, likely what you would see is just a complete rebranding of the the World Wrestling Federation um, if they weren't able to use the WWF moniker. And, you know, World Sports Entertainment Federation is one. And there there is another very well-known globally recognized brand for wrestling that Vince McMahon just purchased. So just keep that out there that the WCW brand could become a necessity and not necessarily an inconvenience for for McMahon and company, depending on how this goes. Um, I think think Vince would rather sell the entire business (laughs) than rename the WWF WCW just to avoid a court ruling. If the whole company's going to have to start going by WCW, then we need to redo this alliance booking right now. Right now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Suddenly SmackDown gets a lot less watchable. Um, well, think of it this way, Eric. You know, if you, if we are going to do a deep dive into into the, you know, into this form of legal optimizations, not only are you providing a service to our loyal listeners, but you're also going to never add another string to your bow for your actual job. Yeah, possibly. So probably- yeah, I will say the intellectual property lawyers uh, bill a lot more per hour uh, than I do. Um, but maybe we can work that into the budget. I'll have to talk to Rory about that. Um, the other thing that I wanted to discuss with uh, the gentleman before we go to SummerSlam proper, um, how do we feel about some of these guys, uh, some of the news with uh, folks like uh, the ones that were explicitly reported on this month, Ray Mysterio? And Kevin Nash coming into the WWF, or in Kevin Nash's case, coming back to the WWF. Uh, Dan, thoughts on on Rey Mysterio and or Kevin Nash, and I suspect your thoughts will be different depending on who you talk to. Uh, well, I mean, Kevin Nash was the utterly drizzling shit in in 1998, nine, arguably in 1998, and. Uh, most like most of WCW's top tier roster are checked out by 2000. So if he is going to come back, I'm, I'm hoping that it's going to be something that is, you know, not part time necessarily, but you cannot expect him to start working with people like Angle and, and Austin and, and arguably Rock um, at full capacity because he's just not in their league. Um, he could potentially come back with, with a returning Triple H and, and form you know, a, a, a duopoly tag team, you know, kind of redoing what <laughs> DX did um, with Triple H sort of now as the uh, as the as the alpha male and Nash as his bodyguard, you know, kind of, you know, and then that would be a storyline. It would basically keep Nash away from the workers. You know, that would be fantastic. Uh, we all know about my feelings on how amazing Rey Mysterio is as a worker. Um, so to see him coming into a into a company that's got, you know, Benoit, Angle, um, Jericho to Jerry um, would be again absolutely amazing. I just hope that whatever this company's going to be called will give him the opportunity to display this work rate. We we know how kind of trash the WWF light heavyweight division was for about two years after they give it a couple of months, and I'm just really hoping that they're not going to make Rey Mysterio the new Takamichi Noku, where guys clearly 
an elite level worker, but just too small to fit into this land of the giants. So forgive me for having very big question marks about how well is this going to work with them coming in. Um, but given how the um, current crop of people coming from WCW into WF have fared so far, they probably should also have big question marks about this opportunity too. Chris, uh, first on uh, Rey Mysterio, I think Dan and I share his sentiment are quite nervous about the prospects of Rey Mysterio Jr. in the World Wrestling Federation. Yeah, I think Rey Mysterio and Kevin Nash being hired at this stage in the game by this particular wrestling company are both quite terrifying prospects for vastly different reasons. Like on Rey, it's like (laughs) having Vince McMahon be in charge of booking that guy. It's just like he's got all the talent in the world, but like, I mean, even his biggest fans probably wouldn't call him much of a promo. And then he's that height. And like, how many times has Vince McMahon seen a guy that size and been able to do anything like booking wise with him that isn't just like short jokes? And, and like, I, I don't know. I, it's it would probably bode well for for Ray and the type of worker he is that he's not there right now like being just one of the goofs in the alliance you know he'd be right at the bottom of that alliance totem pole and probably uh yeah I don't know doing jobs for X-Pac and maybe that would be about the limit for him you know whereas like if you put your fan book in like fantasy booking hat on you put him in that like freeway ladder match and we put him in a freeway ladder match with RVD and Jeff Hardy and you could have something special there, you know, like that's what it feels like. But the idea of him coming into this company when we've seen some even guys that have a lot of like history and TV sort of credentials um, come in as part of this alliance and come out of it looking very badly. um, I don't know that a guy that tall is going to, do have have much of a chance in Vince McMahon's eyes but I mean I, I, I he'd be a great signing like he deserves to be there like he's ultra talented and like who knows maybe maybe I'm being too cynical about it but I think history and Vince for the last however many years teaches us that the Rey Mysterio Jr. is not his type of wrestler um and uh yeah, even when they tried to do something with the cruiserweights in the WWF, it, it never really worked. Um, and uh, I think maybe we're just a bit beyond that. Like, even as far as the whole invasion storyline goes, the sort of cruiserweight aspect of it is, like, the, the weakest part, I'd, I'd say. Not in terms of, like, booking, because obviously you have some, like, hideous booking elsewhere, but just in terms of, like, attention to detail and and stuff like that and maybe that could work in Ray's favor if he's not Chris, quite Chris, under the spotlight what about this what if what if he comes in and every kid that comes in under 12 years old buys a mask at that point i mean and that that's the criticism of wcw with ray mysterio right is they never they never marketed this guy as somebody who by any measure should appeal to young kids i mean he's the he's yep. exactly the type of of entertainer that young kids are drawn to the small undersized guy like they are uh who can do the flips and the flies and you know and can take a hell of an ass kicking 
if he comes in and sells 500 masks a night, they're going to have a hard time not giving him a prominent spot on the card, right? I, I, I don't know. I, I think you look at the landscape of like all of their TV at the moment and you, you sign him and realistically the only way they debut him is by having him like run in to help some Alliance guy win a match or on a segment on Raw or SmackDown, you know, and then at that point for this Alliance heel effectively, it would be low rung mid card within that like group of guys. Do they, do they even start selling masks? Like, I, I don't know. I don't know that they do. Like, it's a huge opportunity, but um, is this Alliance storyline going anywhere fast? Doesn't seem like it. And, like, they'd be mad to kill it off anytime soon, you know? Like, you, I know they haven't got <laughs> the biggest stars from WCW, but the idea of having a WCW, ECW invasion and not making that last one year 18 months you know like is unfathomable so um having a guy like ray come in where he's just got a slot into that landscape i think that limits his prospects even more so my last question to the group is and, and dan or chris feel free to take this one do we have kevin nash versus the big show as the main event or the semi-main event of mania 18 <laughs> i i'm not i'm not buying that show I can't do it. Oh, please make Rory review, make Chris review that show as, if that happens. I mean, I, I mean, we 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 were waiting for that match, a Starcade '97, and we never got it. <laughs> so now is the time. Damn heart troubles. What? Let's go to the show. Let's go to SummerSlam. Dan, what the results? In the opening match of the evening, Edge defeated Lance Storm to regain the WWF Intercontinental Championship for the WWF. The Dudley Boys and Test defeated the APA and Spike Dudley. X-Pac retained his, w, uh, his WCW Cruiserweight title and win the light heavyweight title from Tajiri. Chris Jericho defeated Rhino. Rob Van Dam defeated Jeff Hardy to win back the WWF Hardcore title. The Brothers of Destruction, Kane and Undertaker, defeated Diamond Dallas Page and Chris Canyon to unify the WCW and WWF tag team titles in a cage match. Kurt Angle defeated Stone Cold Steve Austin by disqualification. And The Rock defeated Booker T to win the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Before I go to Chris White for his initial thoughts on the show, uh, I am officially excusing all of us, including me, the two gentlemen, and the listeners from keeping track of all the undercard belts and who has which one and which one is represented by each company. <laughs> so we will go into scant detail about this, but I do promise that the loyal listener will know who holds each of these titles at the end of the show. Um, Chris White, your uh, initial takeaway on SummerSlam 2001, please. Uh, yeah, so uh, I... Uh absolutely uh loved the highs angle versus austin was a uh, yeah sensational um really enjoyed that but i some of the lows were really low but i think and i mean i've had this conversation a, a number of times like we, we're at a stage now eric and i know me and you spoke about this at, at length recently like where like the the default average for like a big wwf pay-per-view is like even the bad matches are like four or five out of ten you know like and and half the time the matches aren't bad it's just like the booking around them or the finish is a bit silly or like in van damme jeff hardy like thoroughly entertaining 16 17 minute match but um one big spot gets blown on the finish it kind of takes the shine off it 
probably not as good as the match from the pay-per-view last month between the two, but still like a really enjoyable 20 minutes of pay-per-view time, you know? So uh, I, I, we're at a point where like I come out of the show and I'm not like blown away. I'm not elated, but when I go back through it and recap, I think, Oh, I'm just being a bit harsh. Like I think all of the matches are like at a certain level where I take positives from the work. I, for the most part in some of like probably the majority of them take like i i see the the storyline i see the booking playing out within a match and i am like not like against what's happening you know like i don't think they're all terrible decisions but then sometimes like that steel cage match for the, <laughs> for the tag titles is like that was that was worse than like take a beating up page at king of the ring you know it was really just like draining to just sit and watch that and just be subjected to this like plodding squash match for like 12 minutes and um it, it takes the show down but i think on the whole this was a really fun show to watch but definitely not one without issues that can be sort of broken down and extrapolated one question that we will pose uh this month is uh how deep is rock bottom when the hole just keeps getting deeper and I'm looking at you, Diamond Dallas Page. Uh, Dan, uh, your initial takeaway on SummerSlam. Uh, initial takeaway is that I think this is a very difficult show to rate in that if you look at it in context with what we were promised as fans in the uh, you know at the start of last month and what could have been, I think this is pretty disappointing. Um, but if you took this show in a vacuum and just judged it on what happened in the ring and the quality of the matches i think this is a pretty very good show um so again it's one of those things where should i rate the show based on the quality of the work that happened or do i rate the show on what it could have been and what it actually is uh, and i'm not quite sure yet how i'm going to do it what were you uh what were you disappointed in um in terms of what the show presented versus what you were hoping for well, we, we've been we had this whole, you know, invasion storyline that has been, you know, kicked off in a huge way, you know, last month, similar to what happened with the NWO and WCW in that this is a seismic, you know, potentially era year defining storyline. And it is not in any way, shape or form delivering on this show compared to what was it. Ju- it just feels like a big giant heel group now compared to this is wcw and ecw looking to you know strike back against the winner of the monday night wars it does not feel like that in any way shape or form after this show um but what is happening on the card involving a random collection of heel wrestlers and face wrestlers was pretty good so again what what do i go for here i'm not quite sure well let's find out it's August 19th, 2001 at the Compact Center in San Jose, California. And we're joined with uh, Jim Ross and Paul Heyman on the call. And we will indeed let the bodies hit the floor. And as JR says, the battle for sports entertainment supremacy continues. And we open with Edge versus Lance Storm for the Intercontinental title. Lance comes out first to noise they call music. And Lance begins his shtick. If I can be serious for a minute, there's no place for offbeat shenanigans. And we think we know him because Edge is out to cut off Lance's shtick. 
The WWF locker room watches Edge with Christian in front. And Dan, you're exactly right. This just comes off as a heel locker room and a face locker room. Long lockup, and Lance grabs a waist lock. In exchange, sees Edge catch an elbow. Off the rope and a flapjack on Lance. Clothesline, and Lance hits the floor. Edge slips through and crowns Lance on the apron. Back in the ring, Edge nails a crossbody for a two. Lance reverses a suplex and hangs Edge on the ropes to the outside. Lance Storm sucks chance as Lance slows it down and slaps Edge. The ring sounds a bit off tonight, and there's a loose bolt or something, and the ropes are loose too. I hope that doesn't come back to hurt anybody. There's a face buster that gets Lance a two. Edge fights back but misses a drop kick, but then Edge gets an inside cradle for a two. They trade fists in the corner. Lance catches Edge off the ropes for a rolling Samoan drop thing, you know the one, for a two, grabs a chin lock, and a sidekick grounds Edge's comeback. Lance grabs an abdominal stretch and talks trash in the process. Edge reverses a springboard into a power slam and both are down. Edge fights up with clotheslines, a backdrop, and a spinning heel kick, drop kick into a powerbomb for a two. Storm reverses a whip into a baseball slide and grabs a leg for the half crab, but Edge makes the ropes and reverses. And here's Christian, but he nails Edge with a spear. Lance nails Christian with a super kick, but Edge kicks out at 2.9. And in exchange, Edge gets the Impaler DDT, and the ref counts three. Edge defeats Lance Storm in 11-16 to win the WWF Intercontinental title. Christian hugs Edge and congratulates him. Chris, your thoughts on this opening contest? Really fun opener. Two athletic guys. Uh, a lot of cool counters, babyface title win. Everything you want, right? Pay-per-view opener, like, like, had it all. Um, I think Lance Storm's one of those guys that's probably a bit unlucky that his, like, run in the WWF is, like, caught up in the, the invasion and, like, the inevitable sort of, like, downturn in booking. That means for his, like, short to medium-term prospects because, like, he's, like, a guy that, like, could totally hang, like, higher up the card in the WWF and like he's just an all-round great worker and I think so is Edge you know like we've spoken about Edge before as a potential breakout and someone who could make his way slowly and surely up the card out of the tag division and I think both guys showed why I, I believe they'd, they'd both fit that bill you know um, some cool spots and counters like uh, the Maple Leaf that Edge sort of pushed his way out of straight into a small package the um springboard from storm into the power slam and like my, probably my favorite was edge catching the hurricane Rana into a power bomb just like all fairly like standard stuff but like just executed well and both guys look great um i'm gonna be a big old hypocrite here and say because normally and i will moan about it later on the show like the, the run-ins and stuff there's loads of them on this show loads of run-ins but I liked it here from a storytelling perspective. I think Christian Spearing Edge was a really great call. But I think if you're doing that, and we all know where that's going with a breakup of that team fully and a, a rivalry between the two, I don't think you need the Intercontinental title on Edge. I think Lance Storm needs that far more than Edge does heading into an Edge and Christian rivalry. Edge and Christian are a popular enough tag team to this audience, to the WWF audience, that if you're going to split them up and have a few between them, you've got that built-in level of investment. Whereas Lance Storm's a newer guy to the to this company, you know, like he he could do with a big win on a big show, um, 
and I think it would have done wonders for his long-term prospects. So I think I think I don't have any problem at all with the running and the spear and like him spearing edge. Like perfect, give me all of that, but just have Storm win immediately afterwards. Don't don't do the finish you did that followed up. But I am being a hypocrite because run-ins normally bad, but this one good. I will say Storm is one of my favorite workers uh, in period right now. Uh, I think he's an incredible in-ring technician, and I think he cuts his promo very well. But I wonder here if, even if the Edge and Christian feud isn't in the long-term plans uh, for, or, or isn't the long-term end game for Edge here. So I'm wondering if capturing the IC title is a step over to not just getting Edge, you know, that 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 next step to main event status, but but also through Christian into somewhere maybe higher on the card. So I'm wondering if the Christian thing is more of an inconvenience as far as where Edge might be high, uh, headed. Uh, Dan, your thoughts on this opening contest? Well, if I can be serious for a moment, if it wasn't for Christian's off-beat shenanigans running in, this match would have been a solid five-star match of the year contender. But as it was, I think it was just a very solid, excellent, you know, Babyface goes over the hot pace heel match that WWF really should be, you know, pulling out pretty much every single pay-per-view and it will work. I kind of see where you're coming from, Chris, but I think we can all see the Christian heel turn coming and therefore him creating a very good false finish probably did serve a purpose in this match. Um, And I know, again, I get what you're saying about having Lance hold on to the belt, but realistically... Lance is a excellent technical wrestler, but just doesn't have that X factor work that someone like Jericho has with um, Benoit certainly has, that Angle has. I just think this is his level. And I honestly would rather have the belt on someone who is a bit, has a little bit more charisma. And that's just me putting my, you know, casual fan hat on a little bit. And it's a shame for Lance, but ultimately, if you're delivering matches, you know, like this as an, as an opener against someone who's a little bit more charisma, and you're gonna, and you're the the general in the ring pushing them to be in a, towards a very good match, I I would take this rather than having him hold on to the belt for another couple of months, just kind of holding it by the scruff of his teeth, really. Um, and again, as we mentioned, I think it is a shame that Lance is is not has been has been brought in as like a very, very good hand, effectively. If he was still a viable second company option, I think he definitely could be an upper card. You know, he'll, you know, doing the stick that he is doing right now, because I think, as as Eric said, I think he's doing it the best of his, you know, limited promo ability. He's making it work. But if if you're saying to me, who's going to be, who's a better IC champion, if you look at what the IC champion was in the early 90s, it's Edge. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt in that in my mind. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, as, as I think most people can agree, the match itself is very good to the best. If, you, if you're pulling out a Hurricanrana counter into a powerbomb and a crossbody counter into a power slam, I'm going to like this match. It's, it's a very simple formula for me. Um, <laughs> very good, very good start to the show. Uh, while we're here uh, and because we can take liberties because uh, I'm in charge, uh, wouldn't, wouldn't of all the titles that are available like in the hopper right now for all these guys, wouldn't Lance Storm be the perfect television champion? If it was in the hopper, then yes, I would agree. Like, yes, he's he's the guy that you put out there for 10 minutes to, and you guarantee a good three-star match. 
yeah. yeah. But ultimately, like, let's make Landstorm, you know, go and feud with the Hardy Boys and have them feud over the European title and then have him be the European title if you want to go down that route. I have no problem with that whatsoever. Yeah, I, I, I just I look at Lance and I see like that's the that's the worker and the, the workers built in the European title. I don't think it's worth the metal that it's printed on at this point. Anyway, that's enough of that. Uh, in the back, Tess tells uh, Michael Cole that the WWF turned its back on Tess and not Tess that turned its back on the WWF. He calls Cole a bitch and he puts over the Deadly Boys. Tess says he just wants to be loved. And it's here I wonder whether all the Alliance people have issues with their parents. Jericho tells Lillian, who he calls Vivian, that Stephanie is a whore. And has an advantage because we're in the Silicone Valley. Get it? And we go to the Dudley Boys and Test versus the APA and Spike with Molly. And my first question here is, who buys that shirt, Spike? Uh, we recap SmackDown and see Test cost the APA the tag belts. And it's Farouk and Bubba to start. Immediate double team on Farouk with the reverse neckbreaker. Devon nails Farouk with a spinning shoulder, but Farouk nails a standing spine buster. Tag to test with punches in the corner. Farouk tags Bradshaw, who takes over with elbows. Uh, back elbow floors test, and Bubba breaks up a powerbomb attempt. Bradshaw takes a pounding in the corner, but he nails a massive club on Devon, and a DDT gets Bradshaw a two. They tag to Spike, who gets a two on an inside cradle. And on the blind tag, Bubba hangs Spike on the inside rope. And I've noted here that Bubba Spike is always fun. Spike tries a DDT on Test, but gets planted, and Devon pulls out the table at ringside. Spike reverses being thrown through the table, but Test keeps the advantage. There's a massive double-team flapjack by the Dudleys onto Spike, but Devon misses a headbutt, and Spike gets a hot tag on Bradshaw, who tackles Test. Corner clothesline and a neckbreaker. This gets messed up in here somewhere, but Bradshaw eventually powerbombs Test, but gets pulled out on the two. And in the fray, Tess throws Spike through the table at ringside. Bradshaw nails the clothesline from hell on Tess. Shane hits the ring, nails Bradshaw with a flying chair, and Nick Patrick, that scoundrel, counts three. This was an incredible final 60 seconds, in my opinion. The Dudley boys and Tess over the APA and Spike in 7-18. This was a very fun five-star Bob, Bob Bamber special recommendation. In my opinion, guys, and I'll throw it to you, this was exactly what you'd expect with these guys, except for a final 60 seconds that probably exceeded all expectations. Dan, we'll start to you to see if you disagree. I, I don't, for once. Uh, yeah, I thought it was, again... A perfectly acceptable big man match with what you would expect with poor little Spike Dudley taking the biggest bumps you could get from Bubba and Test and, and yeah. Bradshaw doing what he does best, which is just a very short sprint of stiffness, which is, yeah, it, it's very fun to watch. Um, but this is probably the first point of contention I would make about the whole storyline that we've got here in that. Why is Test, you know, if you're going to give the rub to a big horse, why are they doing it with Test rather than someone like Mike Awesome? I know Mike Awesome's coming across as clumsy in the um, locker room report, but I, I generally can't see how Test is any better than Mike Awesome. Um, maybe elevate Bubba Ray Dudley into like a Jeff Hardy position where he, he's like the man of that team and put another WCW person in this spot. I just don't see the point of having this huge grand storyline and having the marquee name in this match be Test. 
you have to admit you, you have to admit though when you look at test through the lens of vince mcmahon you, you see why they've pushed him six or seven times now right i mean that at least on a visual level knowing you know who's making these decisions it does make sense as to why they keep going back to the test well I don't I don't have any problem with them pushing Tess down the line when they need someone to come up and, and you know, maybe take a bite out of a of a guy that they're elevating with this angle. But I just don't see why you're doing it a month after you've launched properly this big giant storyline. And again, they are down on guys at the minute. We've already mentioned the fact that Benoit's out, Triple H is out, Guerrero's in, in you know, uh, taking time off. They, they need guys who can work a singles match with some of these other wrestlers that have come in um and again i just don't see why test has to had to have jumped and be the main focal point of this match when there's plenty of other options available that uh, an audience that is looking for fresh blood would be quite excited to see but the match was fine the match was good for what we had and again this is what i'm coming back to in my inner head you know <laughs> de- you know debate Chris, on, on, on Dan's point and anything else, uh, they did close the Stephanie and Test loop in a very awkward segment uh, this month where they basically agreed to bury the hatchet in furtherance, in furtherance of the alliance business. Um, so there is some thought being put into this. Um, but, yeah, thoughts on, on Dan's comments on, on Test and this match in general? I mean, doesn't it link directly with our Rey Mysterio conversation? Like, how many opportunities would Rey Mysterio get at, like, a a bit of a push uh, in Vince McMahon's WWF. Um, yeah, probably probably not as many as, as Test had before. He's not sort of like the, the choice of the month, you know? Um, I, I mean, I don't mind it. I think he's like perfectly fine in this role. This was like a pretty good match. Like seeing Spike get thrown around is always fun. Yeah. Um, like Bubba's great as well. Like Bubba was really good in this match. He stood out to be probably more than test um and like the apa themselves they're like they're a notch or two below uh the best tag teams that the fed have have had to offer the last few years but they have a damn good hot tag like they're just perfect as just coming in big hosses and just yeah uh, laying waste to a few people um two for two with run-ins and i'm gonna be a big old hypocrite here we don't you don't (laughs) need it you don't like here like I why, that, why shane that was my thing like why yeah, shane is it and testing like is it but why this, shane it, to me what this screamed is like we're, we're two for two on run-ins but the screw job here is like unnecessary it's just the product of like this this screams to me vince being unwilling to put over the alliance in any sort of way even when they're wwf guys like they can't just win clean because it's the alliance so we have to have the run-in because the alliance have to screw the wwf because they can't just beat the wwf like in this match you know like it because it's really big important match that's just like six-man tag with huge repercussions there has to be some sort of shenanigans if the alliance are going to get this big win like well not even a big win is it you know just any sort of win on pay-per-view there has to be something I don't know. It that kind of like took me out of it a little bit. Like I don't even know if we're meant to see the alliance as like a legitimate threat. Like really, I know 
<laughs> I mean, one month away from the invasion pay per view, it seems a bit silly to say, but like, it's, I don't know. I uh, I was a bit flat on it to be honest. But I mean, the match itself, again, I I have to say I enjoyed it. Like the uh, test put and spike through the table was pretty awesome. Like just like what you want. Seven minutes in and out. Big man, big big guys throwing spike around. Few big moves. Nice hot tag. A uh, bit of a frantic ending. Booking's a bit messy for me, but yeah, fun seven minutes. This would have been the best match on a lot of 1999 pay-per-views. Um, but again, the the storyline, yeah, kind of falls apart when you think why why does Shane McMahon care about this when his big charge Booker T is has the match of his life uh, against The Rock in, in an hour and a half. So yeah, there is something to be said there for isn't there anybody else who could have come in if there is going to be a run-in and and help the alliance? But it is what it is. Low card match, hard hitting. Um, and the test push continues. In the back, the faces congratulate Edge, and Christian gets himself a European title match against WWF comrade Matt Hardy. And poor Grandma only Grandma, grandma only wants to talk to Edge. In the back, uh, Sean Stasiak is looking for Steve Austin, and he and Deborah have a conversation. And uh, what I've come away from this is that Sean Stasiak doesn't know what Mecca means, even though it's on the back of his tights. Stan Stasek is a former WWF champion, and it's X-Pac versus Tajiri for the WCW Cruiserweight and the WWF Light Heavyweight Championships. Back and forth to start, and we see Tajiri with a two off a standing backflip. A headlock and X-Pac rides Tajiri and slaps his head. Tajiri gets it back. Sequence off the ropes, and Tajiri gets a baseball slide and a springboard moonsault to the floor. X-Pac nails Tajiri on the post and kicks the back for good measure. X-Pac nails a back leg round kick to ground Tajiri. X-Pac with a surfboard, and my fingers are grateful there's a rest hold here. X-Pac catches Tajiri for a sit-down powerbomb for a two. Corner kicks and a choke with the boot. Tajiri hangs X-Pac in the tree of woe and nails a baseball slide kick. A reverse elbow off the flip and then the tarantula. But X-Pac gets a two off a roll through. Tajiri catches X-Pac off the top. This is sideways somehow, and they end up vamping until Tajiri catches a nice German suplex for a two. A sidekick puts Tajiri to the floor, and X-Pac nails a somersault plancha to the outside. X-Pac nails the X-Factor but can't capitalize, and there's a series of two counts. And Chris White, ring the interference bell, because here comes Albert. Pac nails a sidekick, and Tajiri catches Albert with the red mist. But then X-Pac turns to catch the X-Factor on Tajiri for a three. X-Pac over Tajiri in just 7.33 of nonstop action to become a double champion. Chris, three for three on interference. What say you about X-Pac versus Tajiri? So this is where it gets slightly more egregious for me. One, because of the the repetition um, and and three in a row to start your pay-per-view. And two, because this match in particular is completely unnecessary like you you didn't need to do it in this one so it's it's so easy to just think oh we've got this in the first two so we'll call it on this one because in fact we've actually got it in more later on the show as well you know like it just just give me a little break from it but i mean again it, it was probably uh just the the, the concept of, of 
booking interference in in the first great match is is probably more egregious than like how it actually went down in terms of like watching this match you know like i thought this was like a pretty good fun match it's quite slow early on but it did pick up and uh i think the crowd were like really into it and these two guys had some good chemistry and i think this was probably like in terms of like the pay-per-view matches x-pac has had in the last year or 18 months or so this felt a little bit more like sort of like not not quite like old one two three kid level but he's he was a bit better on this show than from what i've become accustomed to as of late um and like yeah some of the some of it was a bit sloppy like they they did lose the surfboard but like i mean it's obviously a tricky move to pull off and expected it incredibly well to recover it and to get it back on like it's sort of like in one sort of transition which was uh really impressive but yeah i have to say that the idea that there's like uh three matches in a row where you've got a bit of interference to start your pay-per-view like just call it on the third one completely unnecessary didn't really play into like storylines and stuff that particularly need to be furthered um with this match but that aside that little moan um i think this was pretty good if you're going to have X-Pac go over here, and that's completely fine if you are. And I agree with everything you said, that he's looked a lot better. And I think maybe going up against somebody like Tajiri, who's just incredible uh, in the ring with the stuff he can do, forced X-Pac to raise his game. So this influx of talent from WCW, some of these smaller guys where X-Pac can kind of work the bigger guy style might work because he's getting a little bit older. Um, you know, he's not 22 anymore. Um I don't know why you just don't have X-Pac, you know, grab the tights, grab the ropes for a roll-up, one, two, three, slip out, and then, you know, have the have a rematch on Raw or something. Yeah, I think Albert's presence here was completely unnecessary. Um, and it actually, they, yeah, Chris, you were right. They, they started a little slow, picked it up really nice. They recovered everything. They laid it in, which is more important to me than everything looking, you know, perfectly great and well executed. They laid in their shots. And, yeah, just have X-Pac slip over and catch Tajiri on a roll-up, grab the tights, and get out of there if, if that's what you're going to do. The finishing sequence with Albert completely threw off their timing at the end. Um, Dan, your thoughts on, on X-Pac versus Tajiri? I can't really add much more to what you guys thought about the match itself. Um, again, another good match with, with again, another excellent worker in Tajiri who I don't think can have a bad match with really anyone, really. Um, I, again, I'll disagree on the Albert point, um, generally just because you get to see the mist. Um, the mist is so over right now that I think that if you deprived people of the mist, they'd be quite pissed off. And, you know, that's always a bit of a crowd pop. And, and even if you would decide to have Xbox go over, you can still definitely do the the um, quick roll up with the tights and the and the shocking cheat the heel, you know, the heel wins with a, a screwy finished job. But at least I was I would still have Albert in here purely just for the miss purposes. Um, and I'm, honestly, Chris, I I kind of didn't whilst watching the show click the interference spot, and maybe it's just because I've you know kind of got used to it, and it's been quite a long break from the the dark days of mid 1999 where we was just like ref bumps and interference after in every single match on pay per view, um, and we've not had that for quite a while. Um, I didn't really notice it. So I didn't really have much of a problem with um, like this match in general, to be honest. I thought it was just a perfectly fine, good, you know, pay-per-view quality cruiserweight match. Saturn is at WWF New York looking for his mop. Remember the Eliminators? In the back, Stephanie hypes up Rhino. 
And we, the recap of this feud uh, culminates in Rhino goring Jericho, which audio you would have heard at the outset of the show. And that was a good looking uh, bit through the SmackDown set. The feud is Jericho calling Steph a whore uh, and Rhino basically going over Jericho at every turn. So that's the theme, the theme of this match as we go to Chris Jericho versus Rhino with Stephanie McMahon. Heyman says he can't stand Jericho because he's so loud and braggadocious. Lock up with a ref break and they exchange hands. Rhino gets the advantage. Chris Cross dropped down and cross body by Jericho. Chris nails an elbow from the top and gets a two. Jericho goes for the walls early, but Rhino powers out. Jericho nails the second rope drop kick and sends Rhino outside. And a Steph distraction lets Rhino get the spear on a flying Jericho. Uh, Chris, are we calling that uh, interference number four tonight, or are we going to let that one slide? I'll just let you think about that. Uh, <laughs> Rhino gets a two on the near fall. Uh, Rhino hangs Jericho on the ropes. And I'll note that's the third time for that spot as well. Uh, Chris, uh, Stephanie slaps Chris, and Rhino locks in a body scissors. He picks up Jericho into an airplane spin, which he turns into a cutter in a nice sequence, but it only gets a two. Rhino puts the boots to Chris and locks in another submission. Jericho stands and breaks with chops, rolls up uh, and rolls up Rhino and gets a two. Rhino recovers with a suplex, but misses a top rope headbutt and both are down. Rhino nails a massive chop, uh, but Chris gets two with a backslide. Jericho then with a flying fist and a series of moves off the ropes. Chris barely nails a backflip off the ropes, those loose ropes, but Rhino catches him and the move looks okay. Steph then distracts the referee. Jericho then grabs her and plants a big one on her. Rhino avoids the lion salt and kicks out of another one. But there's a third lion salt with a finishing sequence. Uh, or uh, There's another one with a finishing sequence that uh, feels mistimed, this match I mean. But Rhino uh, locks in the walls on Chris Jericho. There's loud Y2J chants, and you can't deny it, he's over, and Chris gets to the ropes. Rhino gets a belly-to-belly and sets for the gore. But he misses, bounces off the turnbuckle, and Chris Jericho locks in the walls of Jericho, the true walls of Jericho, and Rhino taps. Chris Jericho wins clean-ish, and you can't complain about that. Chris Jericho wins by submission in 12-34. Dan, your thoughts on this match? Um, Wasn't great. Quite sloppy, um, and not, you know, without any, you know, reasoning because obviously i think they were both quite shook up after what had nearly happened to jericho with the with the ropes but i don't know just like i can i can't deny that he's over but i've seen a lot of very sloppy jericho matches um in the last 12 months or so and i keep mentioning him in like oh lance storm he's just he's, you know he's not the same level of worker or not winning with worker but he's up against people like jericho and like really should downgrade jericho based on the quality that he's been having with of proper singles matches and where there's no gimmicks involved with ladders or tables because yeah i just i just just think he's quite sloppy at the minute and he's just not quite clicking in the same way that i thought he would that being said it's always excellent to see a proper walls of jericho as you mentioned there a proper line tamer getting locked in and you know rhino throughout the last two months have been very well pushed i think he's been pretty well protected and jericho had to bring out the elite level version of his finisher to get the to get the win and the fact that he managed to get that over someone whose whose legs look like tree trunks is again pretty pretty impressive and looking at this more broadly i think that there's a lot of to be said that 
Jericho's feud with Stephanie this month has really done wonders for how over he is. You know, he was over with with Benoit, but then that kind of obviously kind of been derailed with how um, the invasions kind of been focusing mainly on Austin and Angle and and the Rock as as the main characters so far. So to see Jericho being this beloved by the crowd again is is very good to see, and it does you know suggest to me that it kind of was the right decision to to give him a win here, just because. He hasn't had a lot of very good pre- big profile wins recently, in, especially in singles competition. Um, so, yeah, I, I felt the match was average and sloppy, but uh, ultimately the guy, the right guy won. And I don't think it's hurt either of the men involved. I, I think you're right. I think Rhino is kind of that big guy in the upper mid card who can take a, a loss, but still not be any less intimidating. I mean, he basically beat himself. He ran himself headfirst into the turnbuckle, right? Um I remember doing Road Wild 97, and I, I can't remember with who, uh, but we talked about there following a Chris Jericho versus Alex Wright match that Chris Jericho was just that guy that has the reputation as being a good worker, and he generally is, but he's sloppy as hell. And we saw it here. I mean, he just, even loose ropes aside, Chris Jericho just always feels like he's a half step off in all these big matches. And yeah, I wonder if he just has more of a reputation as being a good worker because he's such a good promo and he hangs and, he, and he's affiliated with those guys like Lance Storm and the rest of kind of that ECW, WCW crew rather than himself being a world class worker. Mm. But yeah, we've I been mean, talking. It's, it's very they want him to be a new Shawn Michaels. Like, don't they? They, oh, they want no. him to be Shawn Michaels in every single way. But and by osmosis, everyone assumes he's as good in the ring as Shawn. But ultimately, the other way around. You know, Jericho's a much better promo than Sean is, but he's nowhere near as good a worker as him. And I think we as I've got to get better at disconnecting that, you know, disconnecting that link. Yeah, Chris, your thoughts on on the match and on Jericho and anything else that uh, caught your eye here? Yeah, probably a disappointing match. Probably just as a little bit below what I expected heading in, um, and there may be like reasonably apparent reasons for that um it was quite sloppy um some of the execution was a bit amiss there were some nice spots but like there were a few instances that took me like completely out of it there was like when rhino went for the uh top rope splash i think he was going to miss jericho by about four feet before jericho had even moved like it was it was miles like just I, i don't know what was going on there um and I, I, I don't know. Um, obviously, like the whole storyline, like was like Jericho can't beat Rhino. Jericho can't beat Rhino. Like obviously Jericho is going to win here. Like this isn't a, a grievance about the the booking of the alliance or anything like that. Um, but I was a little bit surprised he tapped out. Um, I definitely thought Jericho would win. Um, and I'm not sure I've <laughs> if. I don't know. I don't think a loss hurts Rhino, but I think being beaten cleanly by submission hurts Rhino a little bit. Um, I think they're probably two different sort of levels to losing a match, and this is probably the slightly worst one for for you as a as a as a character and and as someone that can be intimidating in terms of like the middle of the card. Um, and yeah, I don't know that I'd have done that but i mean ultimately the match just kind of had one aim as like and it was to give jericho this win over rhino and we like we had some uh worrying moments we had a bit of sloppiness we had an average wrestling match but 
as Jericho so elegantly put in a promo earlier in the month, like he's finally got a win over the gore and the whore. So we kind of tick that box and move on, hopefully to better things for both guys. Real quickly, the, the kiss spot. We're still doing that? Oh, yeah. I mean, like... <laughs> Isn't that... That's entertainment, pal. Yeah, it's 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 completely ridiculous. Um, And I, I, I believe I've been on a few shows with Rory where that spot's happened. And my, his takedown of this spot is always so eloquent. I couldn't possibly do it justice. But, yeah, we we, <laughs> we don't need this um, at all. Um, Yeah, it's one of those things that is so egregiously out of date like it just stands out as like a red flag in a match um and again it's one of those things that is so easy to avoid doing just just don't do it it's very simple in the back regal tries to calm down the rock after he was attacked on smackdown stasiak tries to attack the rock whiffs and the segment ends Remember, Stan Stasek was world champion, but he was only a transitional champion after all. And it's Rob Van Dam versus Jeff Hardy for the WWF Hardcore Championship. And JR is forced to acknowledge that RVD is popular. Lock up and trade hammerlocks, headlocks, flips, and arm drags. Smarks, rejoice. And we do. They trade kicks and Jeff nails a double, dro- a double leg drop to the abdomen. Loose rope strike again, but it ends up with Jeff hitting a springboard whirly bird to Rob to the outside. Jeff mitches that ma- the macho man drop to the outside, and Rob hangs Jeff on the barrier and hits that leg drop. Uh, Jeff clobbers Rob off the barricade as Rob uh, drags a ladder into the ring. In the ring, Jeff takes the, to the, takes to the top of the ladder in the face. Jeff high centers Rob on the ladder and both fly to the outside. Jeff plants Rob on the ladder and nails a springboard moonsault uh, on Rob on the ladder. We're four minutes in, and both already look to be in a lot of pain. Jeff folds up Rob with double legs. Rob elbows Jeff and puts him in a trio vol, followed by a backflip and a spear. RVD chants in a lower tenor than the Let's Go Jeff chants. Rob sets up Jeff in the corner, takes to the other turnbuckle, and flips himself across the ring and onto Jeff. That looked incredible. Rob nails a back leg round kick and plants Jeff on the ladder with a crescent kick. Rob takes to the sky and drops a leg off the apron. Jeff baseball slides the ladder onto Rob. In the ring, Jeff sets up the ladder and climbs. From the corner, Rob nails a kick and he sends he and Jeff to the mat in an ugly spot. Rob sets up Jeff with the ladder and instead of the roll, he cartwheels and splashes Jeff on the ladder. Rob scales the ladder. Jeff kicks it from the corner and he, again, he sends Rob onto himself and onto the ladder. That one looked painful as well. Jeff gets a DDT and calls for a swanton, but misses. Rob sets up for the five-star, but misses. Both guys climb. Rob hooks Jeff and takes him over for a superplex off the ladder in the corner of the ring. Ouch. Rob scales the ladder, and Jeff follows. Jeff sunset flips Rob over, and Rob takes the sunset flip in the corner. This is a brutal and extremely active match, if you couldn't tell by my notes. Jeff gets to the top, but Rob moves the ladder, and Jeff hangs in the center of the ring. But here you go, Chris, and this is what you were referring to earlier. Rob tries to swing Jeff and catch him on the on the uh, as he comes back with a spinning heel kick off the top turnbuckle, but he misses. Jeff then misses when he tries to fall on Rob, and I think it's time to go home. 
Rob then pushes Jeff off who uh, off the top of the ladder, and Jeff just accordions off the ropes. Rob gets to the top and gets the belt before Jeff can get back up the ladder. RVD wins the hardcore ladder match and wins the hardcore title in 1633. That match was as jumbled as my notes were. Gentlemen, I'm going to take a sip of water and ask Chris White, what were your thoughts on this match? Uh, excellent job there uh, transcribing all of that. Ladder matches are probably the most difficult, let alone a hardcore one between these two guys. So, yeah, great job. Um, it is such a shame that they I just want to get the negative out of the way. It's such a shame that they ballsed up that that uh, kick while Jeff was hanging towards the end of the match, uh, missed by an absolute mile and. Probably that's the sort of moment that takes this a notch or two below between their match at Invasion. Jeff just hanging there awkwardly afterwards and just sort of falling and landing. And uh, yeah, it would have looked so great if RVD had been able to kick him out of the sky. Unfortunately, went wrong uh, by some distance. But I mean, it didn't take away and shouldn't overshadow from what... uh, was an excellent match otherwise aside from that spot with two guys who really put their their bodies on the line to use that cliche um yeah i mean early on it looked like both guys were hurting pretty bad and i was surprised jeff wasn't more hurt when he hit that springboard to the outside early and hit the table sort of like the back of his legs um i thought that looked really rough um and there was just so many big spots here that were like awesome to watch but like yeah not easy on the body like the, the seesaw spot with with rvd coming off the barricade onto it um even the rolling thunder on the ladder in the corner like I, there was something about how jeff took that to just like looked like his back was a bit sort of like twisted and it didn't look like the angle was particularly comfortable um and like the leg drop over the top rope um with uh jeff laid out on the ladder and rvd um nailing that was just uh probably yeah another one and my highlight really was the jeff coming off the top with the missile drop kick onto the ladder and knocking uh rvd knocking the ladder down and rvd falling and that was a really nasty landing like kind of on like, top of him like he, I mean, rob landed the ladder landed on jeff and then then rob landed on jeff as well and it was exactly in the same spot where jeff had hit the table earlier with the springboard and i was just like oh god this poor guy but like it was just a brutal frantic crazy match if you're gonna have a hardcore ladder match this is what you want like it was perfect for what it is you know um yeah, uh, I, I don't want to focus on the, the, the negatives because they're so few and far between and, and so minor in the grand scheme of things. Little psychology, but just in it, if, when you book a hardcore title ladder match, do you want psychology? Is that what, you, is that what you're booking this match for? Like, like it, it just can't be. Um, this is one of the redeeming qualities of the entire invasion and uh, was superbly done and uh, best match of the night so far. I mean, the psychology of these falls apart when you realize that instead of these guys putting themselves through this, they could have just rolled rolled one of them up in the Kmart parking lot after the show. Um, but no, I think this was an incredibly brutal match. They took a lot of chances and, and not a lot of them pay. You know, some of them didn't pay off, but when it did, it was a spectacle. Dan, I'm very curious as to your thoughts on the hardcore ladder match. Yeah, I agree. Again, it's just another very great example of Jeff Hardy. Just why is he is probably going to be the most associated wrestler with a ladder. 
um, outside of Shawn Michaels for, the, for a very long time. He's just so willing to to do these incredible stunts. And and Rob Van Dam is a you know phenomenon in the ring with with the, his acrobatics and his ability and his flexibility. And I mean, what we've all been waiting for the moment that he got to show his ability to a wider audience and the reasons why he was so beloved in ECW for for such a long time. And this is probably, he probably could have gone up another couple of notches, but he probably brought out too much of his ECW side for that supposed finish and, and completely whiffed it, um, which does always ultimately make it a little bit, you know, less imprinted in my mind it's in, say, in something like you know jericho benoit royal rumble as an example but great point. as a show as a showcase match for for both these guys and, and particularly rvd it was you know a, a big success and i think these two guys have really elevated themselves um in the last two months after what happened with invasion as well and again bringing back to my original argument rvd is the only wrestler on this show spoilers to that was brought in from outside in that influx of talent you know in, in june july time to have won on this show um and that's probably because they can see the fan reactions of what he's doing and can't then don't want to stunt this momentum and i just think again if you want to really make this angle work that's probably not the best ratio to have we talked about Chris Jericho as the next Shawn Michaels, and I just wonder if we don't have two better candidates uh, in the match we just reviewed as far as the next guy that might be the exception that proves the rule that Vince only pushes, you know, big, tough, you know, brawling style, either brawling style guys like Austin if they're not huge or big muscle bound guys like Hogan and Warrior Undertaker type. I'm wondering if we don't want to see Jeff Hardy or Rob Van Dam kind of take that spot. Uh, because they, I think they're both better workers than Jericho, and I think that Jeff Hardy's obvious downfall is going to be his ability on the on the stick. Rob Van Dam can have a good match; he doesn't need all the stuff, but he can do it, and I think he's pretty good on the microphone. So, you know, if you put Rob Van Dam and Chris Jericho in front of me, and you say pick the guy who's going to be, have a career most like Shawn Michaels, I don't know if I could pick at this point. Um, uh, in the Eric, back, go ahead. Uh, just a hypothetical, then, out of those three. I mean, it's. I mean, the question kind of like is a bit stunted by the fact that we're in this invasion. Um, but like, if you were to say, if I was to say now, who wins the WWF title first, if any of them at any point, would, would you would you be willing to like call that or like? Because to me, I am kind of with you both with that like it shouldn't be Jericho, right? Like, if, if Van Damme's having matches like this, then then he's ahead in that queue. I think if you're... I think you have to look at it in terms of, you know, where they kind of are uh, now. And, and Jericho is, in terms of the pecking order, if you were just to list the WWF pecking order, uh, Jericho would be so far ahead of Rob Van Dam that I think you would still have to give the edge to Jericho. And that I think he's either at or getting darn near a point to where they're going to push him to where he either has to win the title or he's going to be forever in that upper mid card and, and never be able to be perceived as that guy. Think of like a Rick Rude in the WWF. Like how many times can he get steamrolled by Warrior before nobody would ever believe that he could be a world champion? 
But if Jericho, so so I think we'll know in the next year or so because or two maybe. But I think Jericho has to win the world title at some point in order to validate all this energy that's being put behind him, barring injury. Um, but I think that we could see Rob Van Dam have a very similar arc as Jericho has had as far as two or three years into his Fed run, really getting, you know, the proverbial rockets, uh, rocket ship strapped to his back. So I think, and I'll, I'll ask Dan the same question. I, for me, I would pick Jericho, but only because of kind of, he's starting from such a place further ahead than Rob Van Dam is right now. And I think Jeff Hardy at this point is the least likely of the three. Dan? Yeah, I agree. And the thing is, is it's stunted as well as that Jericho has had, you know, what, two years now in front of a big audiences mm-hmm. and he's still, you know, massively over. He's probably still the third most popular babyface in terms of crowd reactions they have behind The Rock and, you know, kind of Angle, Taker, you know, in that era. But RVD's impressive right now for the audience and that's why they're they're not booing him. But it will be also, you know, too much of a hyperbole for us to say that he's super over. I think right now he, that, that may change in a couple of months, um, you know, with with established people like Edge, for example, and, and they get more cheers for RVD rather than Edge. Um, then obviously then things start changing. But for right now, I still you have to say Jericho is because he's got and also, again, he's got he's got the chops and the microphone. If I, I literally said this on you know, a couple of minutes ago. RVD have has RVD and Chris Jericho both have had big ladder matches um, with, you know, very good ladder match workers in Benoit and Jeff Hardy, and Jericho got the best match out of him. So it's not totally unfair for us to completely write off Jericho as a great, as not an undeserving worker. Um, but we all, people who know ECW know how good he is, and we'll give him give him a year or two, and I think he will be in the same position that Jericho is right now, without a shadow of a doubt. Chris, I'm going to throw it back to you and add Edge into the mix and see what you think. I think in terms of like realistic, realistic, like the guy I see being pushed up in that mix of the card would be probably Edge first, um, which, I mean, six months ago would have sounded like a stretch, but I think you might be onto something in terms of like there's a plan with Edge and like we've had Jericho in wwf title matches you know and he doesn't feel like he's there now you know it doesn't feel like we're about to move on to austin and jericho and like jericho's like the big savior of the wwf in this alliance storyline it doesn't feel like and obviously we're not there with edge but i i can see it being something that like maybe by sort of royal rumble time like if you manage the next four months properly with edge you could get him in that mix and give him like a good rumble showing and have him in the final two at the very least or something like that and then maybe he gets a shot in the february pay-per-view and like i i think we're closer to that than we are with any of the other three interesting well we'll have to see how it plays out i think what this um points out is that the wwf has a lot of guys simmering uh to take you know, that leap. And we'll see what happens. In the back, Shane gives Booker T bookends from the table Booker put Rock through on SmackDown, and Booker T loves him. The Brothers of Destruction look menacing in the back, and JR throws to a package to discuss this sick ordeal. We'll also call it convoluted or far-fetched. 
And it's the Brothers of Destruction with Sarah versus DDP and Canyon for the WWF, WCW, AWA, ECW, World Class, Mid-South, and Smoky Mountain Tag Team Championships. <laughs> and it's in a steel cage. Uh, DDP looks afraid. Uh, the bell sounds and the heels try to escape. These are WWF cage rules, but there's a WCW referee. Uh, Canyon takes the plunge off the top and a big boot to DDP. DDP fights back, but it's short-lived. Kane and Canyon work the cage to give DDP and Undertaker the ring, where the Undertaker unloads his entire arsenal on DDP. But Page sends Undertaker into the cage after a low blow. Undertaker pops uh, up out of the corner with a boot to Canyon. And they've traded Dan's partner, so Kane can now get some shine on DDP. Uh, this match has no psychology. Uh, Kane catches Canyon off the top with a choke slam and then sends DDP into the cage. Kane powerbombs Canyon into the corner head first. That looked nasty. Uh, Undertaker unloads DDP into the cage. And I've written here, this is an exorcism as much as it is a match. Uh, Canyon catches Undertaker and drives Kane's face into the canvas uh, with the leg in a rare hope spot. Uh, JR struggles with acronyms, DDT, DDP. Uh, there's a hope spot for the heels again, but Kane and Undertaker are quick to sit up. And suddenly Undertaker is on top of the cage. The Undertaker pulls a chain out uh, of the uh, top of the cage mechanism as they let Canyon escape. So now it's the Brothers of Destruction with a chain against DDP. And apparently both members of the team had to escape. I didn't catch if they explained that. Loopholes. But I've written here Canyon should be allowed back in, right? No. Undertaker pulls up DDP, unloads on Page in the corner. With the chain, Undertaker sends DDP into the cage. Undertaker says he'll kill Page if he doesn't leave. And then they all sit there and realize that if DDP leaves, they're going to win the match. So then they catch Page off the top with uh, uh, off the top rope with the uh, of the cage. Choke slam, last ride. Hope it was worth the buyout, Dallas. Undertaker and Kane consolidate the WWF and WCW tag titles in 10-17. We'll go to Dan first uh, for his thoughts on the tag team title cage clusterfuck. I uh, really hope, Rory, you're ready for a big wind-up from come to the year and awards, mate, for when Undertaker's awarded the Wahoo Award after this absolute debacle. If anything, if you wanted to find out what is wrong with this entire storyline, you could pinpoint this match and go, that's what's wrong with this. Wrestlers from WCW not being able to work with the land of the giant wrestlers like Undertaker and Kane. Complete inability of the WWF to give WCW wrestlers any rub so they won't sell. They make them look like pipsqueaks and they look like, like jokes, even though Canyon's one of the most innovative wrestlers that they got in the influx. And DDP is probably the most well-known person that WWF have acquired in this, in this invasion storyline. He's learned to look like an absolute chump. He's made to look like an absolute idiotic fool that he's now gone from wanting to stalk the Undertaker's wife because he wants to be famous, even though he already is famous, to now becoming obsessed with his wife, even though everyone who has any kind of pulse on the industry knows DDP is one of the most beloved family men and and just generally nice human beings there is. So then well, make him become... Hold on, this. Dan. He's also married to Kimberly Page, and I'm not one, you know, this is not... The, this is not the you know judge people's appearance podcast, but if you're married to Kimberly Page, I'm just saying like you're probably not out scoping for other people's wives. Anyway, back to you, Dan. Exactly, it's, it's just non a nonsensical 
utterly shite storyline to start with, then it's made utterly worse by Undertaker's complete and utter inability to give these guys any rub whatsoever. So we just end up with 10 minutes of just uninteresting, boring, beatdown action. And no matter what old school mentality wrestlers say, to for when you just want to see baby faces kick the heels ass and then off you go into the sunset i've done my job no we don't it doesn't work it's boring when that happens the the chase is part of the thrill we want the baby faces to be in peril we had this exact same match a year ago with the hardys and edge and christian and we had the exact same setup where one of the hardys was knocked out of the cage about two or three minutes in and then they had a huge long beatdown and it was an excellent match because they managed to have the storytelling of the guy of i think it was i can't remember it was matt or jeff i think it was matt trying to get back into the cage desperately to to help his brother this does not work with a heel the cowardly heel just runs away and you just get to see ddp beating the living shit out of and then a fucking garbage undertaker just letting him walk away and going, oh, yeah, Dolly's going to win the match. I better bring this boy back to school. Car- garbage. Utter garbage. Easily the worst match of the night. Arguably one of the worst matches of the year. And just put a pin in DDP because after after tonight and after the next night on Raw, this guy, who should have been one of the biggest stars of this entire invasion, is already gone. Chris, uh, you having uh, been on the show for six or seven years now, uh, our listener base knows what you're about to say. So I want to add in the following night's events, as uh, Dan alluded to, and as our listeners will have heard at the outset of the show, just a little snippet of it. But basically, uh, the following night on Raw, it's DDP versus Sarah. And uh, before the bell could ring, uh, the Undertaker uh, beats up DDP, rolls him in the ring, the bell rings, and Sarah gets a crossed arm like planking pin on DDP and Sarah wins a wrestling contest against Diamond Dallas Page to presumably uh, end this feud, hopefully. So, uh, Chris, this match and the next night's encounter, just to the extent that I hope we're done with this, give us your thoughts. Yeah, this match was complete garbage. Um, just uh, everything that we've seen The Undertaker do so badly uh, so many times when he like years ago the famous Rory rant when he <laughs> squashed Kurt Angle um, and this is just history repeating itself um, just a complete burial a complete squash um and like this invasion, we're we're not very far into it, and we're just getting started. Really, like in terms of like invasion was last month. We had SummerSlam, right? We're kicking, but like they have so few legitimate middle to top level guys on the invasion side that are actually from the invasion that aren't just. Okay, this guy's turned. He was in the Fed already, and we've just turned him and put him on that side. As like, and the biggest like example of that is well, they fucking had to turn Austin over to it, like because like 
God forbid they had some actual legitimate WCW and ECW stars that were like more known for the time and there, you know, and we, we did something with them. Um, And like, you had DDP, like who was like probably one of the most likable and popular guys of like the sort of like last five years of WCW's higher card. And this shit storyline they've had from him from day one has just been horrendous. And to cap it off with him losing to the Undertaker's wife on Raw the night after this, like this poor fucking guy, like he needs to, I I don't know, just like, just go home for a while. Like whatever money they are paying him cannot be worth this storyline. Like just, I don't know why you would deliberately like they know it's shit as well, right? Like, what did DDP do apart from just be like a WCW guy? <laughs> like, what has he done to subject himself to this storyline in this booking and to lose to the Undertaker's wife on Raw? And like, the whole character has just been a shambles from minute one. Just the antithesis of like. <sighs> why you wouldn't want what how you wouldn't use ddp like based on i don't know watching any of his career in wcw and like as you've very, well, very they, they didn't do any of that come on I, I i just um this is like the lowest of lows in terms of like this show i don't i, I can't really comprehend the need like wcw died like we don't need to like bury like their stars because you're now trying to make money like the invasion pay-per-view buy rate was astronomical right like for a like non-wrestlemania level show you know like the buy rate is huge we're now trying to as a company we own all that and we're trying to make some money and like you know what if wcw like does well that's that's you doing well like it, they're not the they're not the other guys anymore you don't need to constantly show why you're better and anyone who is a wcw guy that didn't jump ship earlier than the company dying doesn't need to have the undertaker's wife pinning them on raw like it's the whole thing this match was just hideously bad the whole booking's been worse than that and uh the undertaker like i i i'm completely over him i don't like to me like having him (laughs) around in his like current state he's he's as much as like a a bad fit for what i want to see on my tv in august 2001 as they would be if they put kevin nash in there right now in the main event like i just it's not like we've got better guys We've we've done this. We don't need it anymore. Like if he just wants to go off into the sunset, that'd be fine by me. Like even just like having Kane around is like far superior at this stage. And like I don't know. I it's uh as shit as it gets basically. And um I I don't know that there's a possible way to salvage this for DDP and. To be honest, I don't think the company are looking for one either. So I think that's that. Um, it's a shambles. And uh, I think what else is there that we can say about it, really? 
I, I just envision backstage, WrestleMania 6, go with me here, DDP is hanging out with Honky Tonk Man and Greg Valentine getting ready to go out. And he just has an innocuous encounter with Vince McMahon or maybe even Linda. And it rubs Vince along the way and Vince says, I'll get that fucking guy someday. You know, and like there's no other explanation for how they've treated DDP other than either some ancient some ancient vengeance that Vince McMahon wants to rot on DDP or probably more likely they're just going to bury all of these guys uh, and prove how superior the WWF is. Um, but we know they won. Like that company died. <laughs> no, like, this is who a, are we proving it to? It's an invasion, pal. Um, <laughs> I just want to point out, I just want to point out that we started talking about the WWF buying WCW over a year ago. And, I think every month since then, I said, don't expect Vince McMahon to do the most the thing that makes the most financial sense because it's insane. And he wants he wants Vince McMahon to go over even at the expense of his own checkbook. And we're seeing that here because there are guys like Canyon, like um, I, I don't know, like Mike Awesome. I mean, there's so many of them mm. um, guys like, um, you Sean, know, Sean even, Sean, yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's there. I mean, there there are guys here that that could be something, and yet there, it's just this. Um, let's see what happens. In the back, The Rock declines treatment, and Sean Stasiak misses another attack on The Rock. Uh, I, I noted there was no Austin backstage or pre-tapes at any point tonight, which is surprising because he's on TV a lot. Uh, we recap things about Invasion. And this feud is really about hugs and paranoia. And it's Kurt Angle versus Stone Cold Steve Austin for the WWF title. Angle is out first, and we get the rattlesnake, but it's with his drop D heel theme. They brawl in the aisleway to get things started, and Austin slaps Angle and runs him into the barricade. In the ring, the bell sounds, and Angle tackles with punches. In the corner, Angle nails punches and kicks. Austin turns it around with punches and kicks. They trade blows, and a crossbody gets Kurt a two. Austin telegraphs, or Angle telegraphs a backdrop and takes an elbow. Steve works the leg. Angle counters into the ankle lock, but Steve is very quick to the ropes. To the outside, and Austin nails a clothesline and drops Kurt. Back in the ring, Austin counters Angle's punches with a backdrop to the outside. Austin then back in the ring nails a suplex and a second and a third for a two. Angle reverses a fourth and nails a series of Germans on Steve. I think I counted seven. They battle. Angle tries for the set uh, for the angle slam, but Steve rakes the eyes and sends Kurt face first into the corner. They battle for the second rope, but Austin prevails with a superplex. Austin hits a stunner. That's it. No, but Angle kicks out at two and Steve blames Earl Hebner. Another stunner, but Angle rolls out. And I've written here, take the count out, Steve. But instead, Austin rolls out and posts Angle. Angle gets color. And Earl won't let Steve use the belt on Kurt. Steve sends it, Kurt into the post three or four more times and unloads on, uh, unloads on Kurt with punches. JR and Heyman rightly point out that Earl probably should have stopped this match a long time ago because Kurt is bloody. But in the ring, Angle gets his shoulder up at 2.9, and Austin sends Angle into the post again. Kurt reverses Steve and sends him into the crowd, but Steve suplexes Kurt onto the concrete. Angle catches Steve in the ankle lock on the outside, and he is just bleeding a ton. 
Angle drags Steve into the ring, and Steve does that submission cell. You've seen it, but without the blood this time. And again, he gets to the ropes quickly to break the ankle lock. To the outside, Angle nails Steve with a belly-to-belly overhead and follows that with a belly-to-back. Angle then, with Austin on the mat selling his calf, hits the moonsault, but Austin kicks out at 2.9. And in an exchange, Austin locks in the million-dollar dream, which JR calls the Cobra Clutch, but also mentions the ringmaster. So I'm thinking the million-dollar man isn't part of the Fed's invasion plans. Angle tries a Survivor Series 96 pin. That's for you, Rory, but Austin lets go. He retakes the hold but can't put Kurt down. Angle drives Steve to the outside. Steve nails another stunner, and Angle kicks out again. That's the third stunner, and Austin is apoplectic. Angle climbs up Austin and hits an angle slam, but Austin kicks out after Kurt can't get on him for five or ten seconds. And out of nowhere, Steve nails the referee, and I've just written here, oh, no. Angle gets a DDT and another ref counts too. And on the horizon, I see Dusty. Steve stuns the second ref and gives poor Timmy White a belt shot. Kurt with the slam, a pin, and that tricky Nick Patrick is here to save us from the Dusty finish because instead he goes to count but then disqualifies Austin. And I can hear Chris White sigh. Angle over Austin by disqualification at 22-11, and they let poor Nick Patrick take all the heat. Chris, we'll go to you first on this one, because I suspect I know what's coming. So I watched this match twice, and I didn't really make many notes the first time. I made three distinct notes at quite different moments. The first one was... Austin is such a fucking tremendous heel. This is some of his best work. And then about 10 minutes later, I put Angle is such a fucking tremendous baby face. I think that was when he was screaming, tap you son of a bitch. When he had yeah. the ankle lock on the outside, he's covered in blood. And I was like, yeah, and woo- I'm in. And wooing with like Ric Flair. Yeah, yeah. I was fully in. And then the third, the third one is what a fucking shitty finish. Yeah. And I was like, ah. Oh. I, and then I watched it again because I, I wanted to make some more like detailed notes and like this is going along like we don't do star ratings four and a half plus though for me like I think this is the best match of Angle's career so far um, and then that finish just kind of took the wind out of me a bit but I think they kind of got got me back like the storyline just works, you know, like the, the finish is on paper, like it, on paper, this is as shit as you can get for like a WWF title match at SummerSlam, you know, but like a Luger would disagree. <laughs> that, I mean, that's true. But like the storyline perspective here is like, it just fits so well with that Austin character. And he's like the best character that like I've ever seen in wrestling, you know, like I feel like he's like at the top of his game and Austin's game is like the peak of professional wrestling, you know, and it just fits so perfectly. Like Austin just can't be angle. And when he starts panicking and barely kicks out of that angle slam, it's just like, he's going to take this cheap way out and we get there. And like that fit fitting so well. And JR just like, screaming in Heyman's face on commentary when we get the camera on them after. I think it just about won me round, you know? Like, in in the moment, I was like, this is like, 
this is like a WCW finish. Like we're just going to keep stunning refs until eventually we get a heel ref who's just going to throw the match out. Like, like, and I was just like, that that sounds very WCW finish to me. Um, but I I guess like the the saving grace is all I've said, and also that is like it's not the main event. Like if this was WCW, that's how the show goes off, right? Like there's no, there's no, there's no match to send the crowd home happy at the end that we'll get to. And I think like this match placement is a very conscious decision knowing on knowing how the the finish was going to go. I think Kurt is like that. I'm I'm sometimes skeptical with the like really, really pro ultra American stuff with Kurt just in that, it doesn't really fit the the guys he's going against, you know. Like it it the the Kurt Kurt's babyface character to me, oh, and I mean as a non-American certainly, like could be so much more than just like the the American guy, you know. Like, it, but he leans on it so heavily. I don't know. I sense a twinge of jealousy. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe so, but I I think there's just like a level of his intensity that's really gone up in the last like month or so in this story being positioned as and even with the rocks return to me he feels like the number one guy you know he feels like the the number one face the wwf has in this feud against the the invading force um and like yeah i thought this match was just so good um i really thought it lived up to all of the hype and probably one of the best matches i've seen this year um yeah i don't think i've seen angle work a better match particularly as a baby face um and the crowd were just so into them and i think this is austin's best heel heel performance as well like and those two things happened on the same night and it was like lightning struck and then the finish kind of took away from it but we know we're getting a rematch um i don't want to again maybe i'm picking and choosing and being a hypocrite again and being like annoyed at like inconsequential finishes and then when they pull the fast one in a wwf title match then it like i kind of let it go a bit but this is this is like what i mean by like an egregious finish is like when you don't need to book interference or shenanigans and you do it's so frustrating but but here i'm not saying they needed to book it but it fit the story so perfectly that I can kind of, I kind of allow it. This is, this is Stone Cold Steve Austin, the paranoid champion that's been the best thing on TV for the entire year, you know, um, since since the heel turn um, back at WrestleMania. So mixed emotions, but I think overwhelmingly, what I want to take from this is that it was a sensational match. I think on star power alone, you look at this match and you say this, this match should go on last because I don't think there's any, I don't think Austin plus angle. I don't think there's any question that Austin plus angle, you know, it's kind of a greater sum than, than the rock. Who's an incredible star, but then plus Booker T who's still not quite probably at that same level. Uh, they're trying. Uh, so when you see this match go on second to last, it kind of telegraphs to some degree, what's going to happen in this match. And then probably what's going to happen in, in the rocks match. Right. And then, you make a great point, Chris, and then it's like, so where do they go from here? And you realize that Unforgiven next month is in Pittsburgh, and that's where Kurt Angle's from. And you think, okay, well, I mean, it, it, it writes itself. 
So we'll we'll reserve judgment on this finish to see if it pays off next month. Uh, Dan, pick up on this match and anything that Chris said. Yeah, this match was magnificent. Um, just a, a, probably the best heel performance in a main event title match I've seen personally. I mean, Austin is a psychopathic, vicious asshole in this match. And I don't think even a great heel that Triple H was last year was as good as he was. I mean, stuff like him just slapping, slapping Angle after the free kickouts of the Stone Cold Stunner. And even that is believable in a way because the first one is, is just comes out the blue after eight minutes. And so it's kind of believable that Angle had enough strength to kick out of that. And even the second one, he falls out of the ring. The third one is just, you are not beating Kurt Angle on this night, Steve. You need to get out of here now. And it's such a believable finish, even though it is such a gut punch. And yeah, as Chris said, normally these finishes in WCW would have left you irate uh, how much a company could destroy its fan base and treat its fan base with such disdain as they as they often did. But yeah, I thought this match sets up perfectly for next month. It was believable because of the characters. Both men have been such a hit with their current characters as well that it, you want to see more from them. And we get Nick Patrick being Nick Patrick, which is always a hit. Um, and go back to what you both have said. Not only is this Austin's best version of himself as a heel, but Kurt in this month has just been an absolute revelation as a relatable Captain America style babyface. And I know you've got qualms with him being Mr. America, so to speak, but him just being like... We'll get onto it later on after the show, but even his interactions with him and The Rock at the start of the month and him going, you know, bygones be guardians, here, have some milk, you know, at the start of the month. And it's just like, yes, this is the Kurt that I can get as a babyface. He's he's not quite as bombastic as Hogan, Rock, Warrior, you know, even people like Jericho, but he's relatable and he is believable that he is wanting to carried the torch for his company and be the captain of the team that he was in 1996 and this work magic in this match like his selling of the ring post shots were very uncomfortable and you know it's when it's that violent you always have a little bit of your you know your head go back to what happened two months ago and whether this actually is him getting concussed as we speak or whether he's just that damn good and sort of a weird weird thing that I don't really want to think about in too much detail but again it's just testament to how good this guy is in the ring I thought this match was truly truly wonderful um I don't think it's quite as good as The Rock at Wrestlemania but I'm splitting hairs here it's easily one of the best matches of the year definitely Kurt's best ever best ever match in WWF and a worthy you know entry into the Austin pantheon of, of absolutely outstanding matches he's had in this company as the as the man in wrestling for the last five years. It, it says a lot about the quality of this match and of these two guys that I don't know that we've ever had a more glowing review of a main event match that ended in a disqualification uh, or, or a world title match that ended in a disqualification uh, on the show. At least one isn't obvious to me. So yeah, I would say finish aside, and there's a probably a clear path and a clear explanation as to why that finish went as it did. This was just amazing. Let's see if it can be topped. 
And we go to a recap package, uh, recap The Rock's return late last month into early August, and Booker T's mischief since then. They've been putting everybody, Shane, Rock, Booker, through tables on Raw and SmackDown. Um, and I, I note here that The Rock, so, first of all, this crowd is still in it uh, after that last match, and, and The Rock gets a huge ovation. The Rock opens with fists and drops Booker. The Rock chases Shane, and that lets Booker get his kicks in. And a Samoan drop gets Rock uh, gets the Rock a two. Booker drops Rock with the knee, but the Rock gets a cradle for a two. Booker then gets a Harlem sidekick for a two. The Rock sends Booker over the top. They brawl to the outside, and the Rock sends Booker into the announce table head first. The Rock punches Booker in the groin. Booker counters and sends Rock into the stairs, and he crotches Rock on the barrier. They brawl into the crowd, and Booker drops the Rock onto another guardrail in the audience. Back to ringside, and Booker sends Rock into the post, and the Rock goes flying. Shane attempts to untie the buckle pad uh, in the top corner. He succeeds. Uh, in the ring, the Rock takes over with punches until he's nailed with a sidekick. He counters another attack with a spinning shoulder, and Booker locks in a chin lock. Uh, the Rock fights out and locks in the sharpshooter. Shane distracts the ref. The Rock brings in Shane over the top, but takes a crescent kick for his trouble. Booker notices the uncovered corner buckle, but The Rock counters and sends Booker into the uncovered buckle. The Ro Booker gets a spurious kick out, and the match continues. Shane puts a chair in the corner and nails The Rock with either the bell or, a, or, or the belt. And here come the APA out to equalize things. Shane takes a massive clothesline from hell on the floor from Bradshaw. In the ring, Booker nails the bookend, but The Rock kicks out at two. The Rock fires up with punches and a flying clothesline. Overhead belly-to-belly belly gets the rock a two. The rock gets a spine buster and sets up for the elbow. Shane breaks up the count and distracts the ref. Rock bottom to Shane on the outside. The rock fires up on Booker, but Booker gets a spine buster and the crowd wants a spin-a-rooney. Booker nails a, sp a scissors kick and the spin-a-rooney, but the rock nips up and gets the rock bottom out of nowhere for the three. And the rock captures the WCW title, pinning Booker T in 15 18. Dan, we'll come to you first. The Rock versus Booker T. Um, obviously, they couldn't match what came before. I don't think these two can have a match in them that comes close to what they did. But for what we got, it was reasonably okay. Um, you know, Booker, of all of the guys that have come over that aren't an elite worker like Lance Storm, he's probably easily the guy who's adopted to the new style of wrestling WWF want to input the best and I think that's probably why he's got the best matches out of anybody in WCW so far um and yeah I just I just thought that again it was a perfectly serviceable good main event level match um which is is fine it is what you know I, I can't have any complaints to it um it's just one of those matches where you've been spoiled by what's come before and it's so this is probably where the, the finish does have an impact on you. It's like such a emotional gut punch that even someone like The Rock coming back and, and reclaiming the WCW title. And I do like the fact that, yes, this invasion angle is, is falling on its ass after just two months. But The Rock capturing the WCW title to give the WWF team back a version of a world title is sold as being super important to the the upcoming battle. And I thought that 
they did a good job in here, but they're doing a detrimental to themselves by then making Jim Ross give Booker absolutely nothing on commentary. You know, just before he gets pinned, he's going to spin a rune in my ass, just doing nothing to put Booker over. And it's up to poor old Heyman to try and get Booker T over as a main event level threat and a threat to The Rock, which I don't think they've quite done, um, which did make the finish of this match quite predictable and quite, you know, a, not a damp squib, but definitely nothing as emotionally as impactful as what came before. Um, and obviously we've just complained about the fact that if they did do the match before last, that we would have left the show up with a real downer and we didn't get that now with a with a lesser main event. But for, it was what it was. It was it was good, but it's not something I'm probably going to remember come the end of the year, um, apart from The Rock returning and winning a world title again. Yeah, for me it was let's you got 15 minutes. Don't make Booker look terrible, and then the Rock. And the whole purpose of this match was the finish and and the outcome. So you know how do we get how do we have a match that keeps Booker decently strong uh, with the right outcome? And I think I agree with you, Dan. Like this is probably the match that it was always out to be, or that they always that they had it set out to be. They pulled it off. It was fine. Nothing wrong with it. Rock goes over. Chris, your thoughts on the main event of SummerSlam? Yeah, I thought it was a good match um, and probably like kind of like where I expected it to be based on what it followed. Um, I, I feel like, I don't know, I think Booker probably should have won big singles match at some point before we beat him in his first one. But that's just a slightly less egregious version of everything I ranted about with DDP, you know, Um, like it's, he, he's not the guy because he's WCW and he'll never be the guy because he's WCW. um, And particularly now in, in in this storyline. So uh, until we move away from that mentality, then this is probably like the pinnacle of Booker T's WWF run. Um, I I I think it worked fine and it sort of gave that happy ending for the crowd and um I think um I probably would have expected it to be a bit better it was slightly paint by numbers and I think it's probably because uh, I mean predictable to me isn't isn't bad predictable doesn't mean it's inherently a bad thing particularly when you're telling a storyline that's like coherent and you've um, maybe done a bit of foreshadowing here and there and as a fan who pays a lot of attention and watches all the product you, you you can see where things are going that's that's not a bad thing but I think when you have a predictable outcome you you have to make the journey and that in when it, we're talking about professional wrestling means the match is slightly more compelling than, than this felt. And it's probably just a, a byproduct of um, what it had to follow and probably the, the strength of Booker T as a singles wrestler at the top of the card on this show in this company, you know, um, I, I don't know that I think, <laughs> I don't know. I don't feel like the rock has made as much of, 
an impact as I expected him to coming back. And I think that's probably for two reasons. And they're Stone Cold Steve Austin and Kurt Angle. And not just on this night having the match they did, but I think the the best person on TV every week is Stone Cold Steve Austin and the best baby face is Kurt Angle. And then kind of The Rock is like a little bit of a spare part. I also um, read an interesting article. I can't remember where it was from, but basically, um, Eric, and you'll be like our uh, expert uh, on this show, on this sort of like timeline, but basically alluding to similarities between Booker T and The Rock the last few weeks and kind of like the Millionaires Club and the New Blood in terms of like, (laughs) in terms of like everything that the other guys got is kind of like just a slight rip off or slight imitation or even if it's not that but just slight of like it's like we've got the bookend and the rock bottom and that's fine but like in promos the rock is just like completely billy gunning him you know like yeah. <laughs> from like we saw from a couple of years ago booker t's there calling the spinner rooney the most electrifying move and i i don't know that it connects and i i don't really know who's at fault for it this match was fine and probably better than what i'm saying makes it sound like i i felt about it but ultimately aside from this show i i felt like rock's return to sort of weekly wf tv would probably do more for me than it has he's been repetitive and you know he's kind of he looks like the rock and he sounds like the rock and he smells like the rock but there is something missing in that he's uh, I've noticed this too. You know, he he is resorting to catchphrases and to you know cheap pops and that sort of thing, and that's kind of the difference between Austin and Rock. Because Austin goes out there and cuts these like 15 minute. They're not even promos. Austin just goes out there and talks for 15 minutes to open Raw, and then you get the Rock in a two minute quick hit where he just says jabroni and makes you know it makes a gay joke or something and. You know, we're supposed to treat these two people as equal and, and like, yeah, we know The Rock's a star and we know The Rock looks like a star and we know that, you know, cards on the table, he is the second biggest star in wrestling. But I think you're right. There's just something missing from The Rock in that, you know, first of all, he's been, he's been positioned with Booker T, which, you know, all things being equal, Booker T is not on this level yet. And I think that this feud has kind of shown that. Um, you know, it's kind of exposed Booker T and maybe he'll rise to the occasion in the future. But, you know, for now, it's definitely feels like a secondary feud to Austin Angle. Um, but no, I, I completely agree with you. I think that what we're seeing here is kind of a clunky integration of, you know, the guy that I think everybody perceived to be WCW's most promising guy, Booker T, at the end of WCW's run into the roster and maybe pairing him with the rock was an obvious choice, but not the best choice that they, they could have done, because I don't necessarily think that. It's done much for either guy. And The Rock being WCW champion, I don't know that that suits The Rock very well either. All right, uh, Dan, your overall thoughts on the show and your score rating out of 10. Mm, why don't you come to me first, man? Uh, right, so I think that if we, again, look at this as a as a invasion continuation pay-per-view, I, I really think it really fails. Um, I remember that if we compare this to what WCW did with the NWO, they had the kickoff with Bash the Beach, obviously. Then they continued it with reasonably successfully at Road Wild. And then, let's say, the you know, four brawl with war games, they beat the horsemen. 
that's like a way to make the NWO an established threat that WCW needs to beat. And obviously they failed miserably with the long term angle of it, but the short term it was really working. It was really making compelling television. The reason that WWF right now has compelling television is because of Austin. It's not because of the invasion. It's just because Austin's a heel and he's leading the group of heels that just somehow happen to be, you know, XWCW and ECW wrestlers. So to me, the invasion is already failing because there's nobody that I buy as a legitimate threat. And say we will about the, the level of talents that were coming across, but goodness me, they WWF have tried to make so many, so many shite wrestlers stars and have succeeded quite a few times. So there's no forgiveness for me to, to say that they couldn't do that again. And what they've already done to people like DDP and, you know, shunting around, storm away down the card, not given the elevation, the proper elevation to people like Booker T. This invasion, the invasion is, is already dying a death unless they bring in fresh blood. Um, however, I'm going to be generous and just rank this show based on what we had in the ring itself and on that basis i'm going to give a much more positive rating because there were some truly outstanding matches with austin angle we had some very good matches in the opener the ladder match and the cruiserweight and that pretty much the first three to four matches were all in some variances is good and and was just disappointing the only real dud on this show was the cage match um and again, the main event was was still good. It was, you know, we've had worse main events than a long time ago, back in the 90s and definitely even 1999. So for that reason, I'm going to give this show a very strong seven. Um, but again, if I'm looking at this back in context of how this could be going, it, it's definitely a step backwards from the, the, the promise that we had last month. Yeah, I thought this was a, 7.5 show so we're right on the same page and, and really for all the reasons you discussed but it's hard to give a show less than a you know 775 when you have a match as good as austin angle as hard hitting as that hardcore ladder match as impressive as that landstorm edge match and yeah i feel like we're giving the undertaker even too much attention if we if we downgrade the show too much for his presence because at this point it's just kind of an accepted uh reality that you're going to get some shit undertaker match on a wwf card so uh, Dan, I'm with you on a 7.5 uh, out of 10, so just a little bit higher. And we'll see if uh, Chris White uh, gives us a little bit of a consensus here. Chris? Yeah, I, I think I kind of would go for a 7. I think if you were to take the steel cage match out of it, then this is like an 8. You're looking at an 8+, plus, you know, but that is such a horrible mark against this show. Um, I think we've got a really fun opener here. The six man's really good. Um, a decent um, cruiserweight or light heavyweight match, or well, both, I suppose. Uh, Jericho Rhino was was fine, like it maybe didn't deliver, but it's not something that would knock marks off a show. Um, the ladder match was brilliant. Uh, Angle and Stone Cold was one of my favourite matches of the year, and the main event again, um, maybe not um, spectacular, but certainly no detriment to the overall enjoyment of the show and product so i think you're looking at a really solid like solid sounds average but we're looking at like a top to bottom good show here with the exception of that really horrible tag match and i think seven is where i kind of come down from that because i think it's probably fair to sort of collect and culminate all of my 
distaste for the booking and certain elements of like the general invasion storyline at the moment and like throw it firmly at the feet of that match um and just kind of say look like this is garbage and kind of dock a mark or even 1.5 off of what would have been a high score for this show so i think i've come down at about seven which i think is fair if you're gonna sit down and watch SummerSlam, you're gonna have a good time i wouldn't necessarily say there's anything that needs to be skipped outside from that cage match if you want to like remain calm and collected then yeah you should definitely uh give that one a miss but yeah i think it's a good show what i want it And you will have heard audio from Raw on August 20th, Austin Appreciation Night with Paul Heyman as the MC. We see Shane Helms say Austin is his new hero. Uh, Canyon says Steve Austin is better than Canyon. And poor Steve, if you've been following along with us on Raw and SmackDown, poor Steve does not want Deborah's cookies. Austin finds time to bully Taz for not wearing an Austin shirt. And suddenly we hear the familiar horns of Kurt Angle's music. And he's driving a milk truck. Angle hits the ring with the milk truck, lobs a couple of cartons of milk at the at the alliance there in the ring for Austin appreciation, grabs a hose and douses the alliance with milk. Uh, Pratt falls galore. Angle's, uh, Angle climbs the milk truck. And uh, crashes those two 
cartons together, and JR says, that's the hard stuff. It's homogenized. What? I'm getting that sinking feeling. See, Coach, you don't want to cry for me. You don't want to beg for me. Mm. Well, if that's the case, Kurt, you don't really want these medals. Hell, if you don't want them, I don't want them. I got enough luggage in my bag. I'm carrying this belt around. This is what means everything to me. These mean nothing to me. And if you won't beg for me, if you won't cry for me, they don't mean nothing to you. You pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. And that's the difference between you and me. I pledge allegiance to Stone Cold Steve Austin. I pledge allegiance to this. And since you make me sick, you leave me no choice, you little mealy mouth Olympic punk. Fast forward a couple weeks later, Austin acquires Kurt Angle's medals, and we're in Detroit. And for those of you that have been following along with this show for three or four years, you know when Raw's in Detroit or SmackDown's in Detroit that something's going into the river. And tonight, after Kurt Angle gets done dispatching of Booker T, uh, Booker uh, or Austin shows up on the SmackDown Tron, and he's going to throw the medals in the river, and he does. And he says, Kurt Angle, if Kurt Angle can't beg for his medals, he doesn't deserve them. And so we end the month with Kurt Angle dousing the alliance with milk and Austin responding by throwing the gold medals into the Detroit River, setting up Unforgiven in September. And the main event, presumably of that show, taking place, as we said, in Kurt Angle's hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So, uh, Dan, I guess we'll start with you. The milk truck, Austin throwing the medals into the river. They've sure kept the heat up for this feud going into Unforgiven. Just give us your thoughts on this. You know, as we wrap up for the month, uh, Kurt Angle and Austin, and, and I think this gives credence to you saying that Kurt Angle is probably the number one face in the company right now. Oh, for sure. I mean, uh, let, let's start with the, the my slight concerns, not, not even concerns, but just like things I would done bit differently. I'm not a huge, great fan of Kurt Angle doing bombastic. Like, I just don't think him coming into a milk truck it does feel a little bit like, right, we need to make you more like Austin, you know, circa 1998 um, and the return of the, wouldn't it be cool if we did this era, which I'm not quite sure this version of Kurt Angle is, is ready for yet. I might, this, I might be the minority there. Uh, I just prefer my Kurt Angle being funny, sort of kind of like low key, you know, but real you know kind of earnest heart baby face um but look let's go back to the best thing on probably for a while which is austin's heel character it's just utterly brilliantly good written character um i'm assuming that austin is having a big hand in this and and coming up with these ideas but the fact that we've got you know this pack this passage of last two weeks where 
in the spate of a couple of weeks, he, he's finding himself on the recipient end of the beer truck, you know, kind of rehash angle. He then is going back to, you know, the, the bridge instance, instances where he's throwing things off the bridge, but also not to forgetting it's Detroit, which is exactly the same car park that he was run over in at Survivor Series 1999. And oh. then he tries to run over Kurt Angle again on the night he gets, he taunts Angle with his medals. Um, this guy is just writing like layers and layers and layers of depth into this psychotic kind of almost vacant obsessed title maniac that is just so compelling to watch and he's one moment he's you know he's chastising Hugh Morris in every single sentence he's going what 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 your name is Hugh Morris what even after he goes and throws the medals off the end of the bridge he just looks dead faced into the camera what who is coming up with this it's it's either this 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 is either going to go horribly wrong or just one of these inspired things that it again catches on like 316 or Austin says I just whipped your ass. It's just going to catch on or going to you know fade out and just be part of what Austin did randomly this month with the cowboy hats and the guitars. But yeah, just one moment he's doing that and then one next moment he's whipping Taz and he's berating, screaming at Deborah. And the guy is just, it is must watch, but sometimes you want to call up inside and, and wish that this guy would stop. And that's just a mark of a great heel that he's just compelling television. And you really want Angle to, to break his ankle and win the belt back next month in his hometown. I mean, what more can you want from a heel? Like this is probably the best heel I think we've had as a character since the, the glory days of Ric Flair. I generally can't think of him heel better than Austin right now. And yet, again, we I was concerned that we've lost Austin as a money-making machine that he was in 1998-99, but with, with the invasion angle, make, raking in the dollars and the rock being around and angle you know, ascending to this really high-level babyface, we can have we can afford to have Austin indulge his his inner artist and be the psychotic villain that is just being the best wrestler in the world right now. Chris, bring us home with Austin, Engel, the milk truck, the Detroit River, the Detroit car park, or anything else that you want to discuss to bring us home for August two thousand and one. The floor is yours, sir. Yeah, so to kind of break down both segments, like I have to say I loved the whole setup for the, the milk truck and like Austin appreciation night and just like before he Kurt comes out the way as we as you just started talking about there Dan like Austin just running someone down and like the way he runs Taz down for not wearing that shirt and just the amount of shine that Stone Cold Steve Austin in this form is able to give to different people as just a heel member of the alliance is exceptional because like I feel like every single person in that ring benefited from his presence and like just being able to be in the background and the facial expressions to him talking Taz down and the what and all of that is just a testament to the fact that he is and has been for a long time operating on a very different level to everyone else in the company. Um, 
when Kurt comes out, I thought it was hilarious, like the setup for it. But it just got better. But like the alliance, like completely cowering behind Austin while Angle throws individual milk cartons was just like absurd. But it's the exact type of stupid that can make pro wrestling great. And I loved it so much. And Stasiak running at him and just being like the ultimate geek of all geeks and like that is exactly the type of pro wrestling silly like that can just work and it maybe like you get a segment like that or a moment like that that taken out of context and maybe shown to a non-wrestling fan they can be a little bit cringy sometimes but i feel like at our very core as pro wrestling fans you 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 have to buy into a little bit of silly at some stage and this just clicks and it just works and just when the hose comes out my god like austin like again everything that he does every step he takes every word he says is just always on the money and the way he does not move an inch he stands front and center just taking this like hose of milk directly to the face while everyone else in that ring is like bumping and flopping around behind him and just like jr's line this like you know like someone came up with that during the day and was like oh we'll get that in with the million dollar princess has become the dairy queen it's just like the whole thing is like i left watching that with just the biggest smile on my face you know like that's everything that makes pro wrestling fun and why we watch it and then to follow their app you get like the slightly more serious less comic angle of the austin throwing the medals and just one of the lines of the month on any tv any promo we've seen with the you pledge allegiance to the flag of the united states of america and that's the difference between you and me i pledge allegiance to stone cold steve austin and the wwf title just like the way he delivered it was just like it's just perfect and like he he's like oh i've got i don't need these i've got enough luggage because i've got this belt and it's like like you said like we've seen we've seen segments of stuff getting thrown in the river before but i don't think i don't think anyone's done it as good as austin and i don't think anyone could i don't know that there's a a time in the duration like in the timeline of the show i don't think there's anyone that has ever been as good as austin is right now and um that's happening while there's like this whole huge invasion angle and it's not exactly a smash hit but like right at its core you've got this guy just in the ring at SummerSlam on the mic in every segment and he is in so many segments on tv and he's just 10 out of 10 every time and i i think at the moment like we've talked about before like Raw and SmackDown are must watch because you're going to have Stone Cold Steve Austin on them and he's going to be on the show 12 times and you want to see all 12 of those segments because I think he's just on another stratosphere at the moment and it's it's truly like despite the the wider problems with maybe elements of Vince McMahon's booking and the invasion angle I, I think it's just a tremendous time and a, and we're, we're, it's a lucky time to be a pro, pro wrestling fan while we get to watch Steve Austin uh, do his stuff as he is at the moment for us. No better way to wrap up our August, our August 2001 volume than the highest of praise uh, from our Mr. White. 
Uh, and I'll thank uh, Chris White uh, for joining us. Chris, uh, happy to have you back. Uh, I hope the uh, passenger's chair uh, was a smooth ride for you. Tell us anything we need to know about yourself uh, before we uh, wrap up. Where can we find you or anything you want to say, your closing thoughts, anything like that? Yeah, thank you for having me, Eric. It's an absolute pleasure to be back on in the guest spot. Uh, not my usual seat, but thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh, you did a great job, as always, like steering the ship for another month as host. And uh, yeah, uh, you can check out uh, my sort of social media at ChrisWhite14 on, on the Twitter. And uh, that's about it. No more plugs from me. Uh, make sure you check out the uh, indie uh, wrestling 20 years ago podcast as well, because the guys over there are doing a great job um, getting that, that up and running and getting a show out to everyone each month and we've had some really good feedback so yeah make sure you check that out and uh thanks uh thanks for listening to me on this show dan willing we made it through another show without trading any fists i'll take it as a win we agreed on most things today it's quite weird spooky spooky we'll have to have some sort of cruiserweight versus you know horse showdown and you know then we can have a proper slugfest and that'll be quite fun Hey. But as always, it was a, it was a pleasure um, recording and a pleasure watching uh, one of the best, you know, one of the best wrestlers in the world doing what he does best at the peak of his powers. It's always excellent. No complaints. Uh, and, and like Chris uh, said, uh, find us on Twitter at uh, Wrestling20YRS and stay tuned. We've got great things in the months ahead. For Chris White and Dan Welling, I have been Eric Landstrom. And until next time, goodbye. What?